Mason welcoming you to chapter 139 of A History of England. We're going to be talking about unintended downsides of apparently generous measures, as well as regaling ourselves with tales of imprisonment, star-crossed lovers and murderous deeds. How about that for an action-packed agenda for one episode? In Ireland, the passage of both a coercive measure, the Protection of Persons and Property Act, or Suspects Act, and a conciliatory one, the Land Act, faced Parnell and the Land League with some tricky decisions. In the first place, the Land Act was far from satisfactory. It addressed the problems of tenant farmers, but not of leaseholders. It allowed for some purchase of land by tenants, with financial help from the government, but take-up was poor. Much more important still, the Act didn't address the fundamental problems of Ireland, even in the specific area of agriculture. Land purchase sounds great, as does the right of a tenant to recover his investment in improvements of his land by selling them to a successor. The reality, though, is that purchasing land, or paying for past improvements to it, absorbed precious capital, which couldn't then be invested improving the way the land was farmed. Real progress, of the kind that would have a major impact on Irish poverty, needed easy access to capital. Unfortunately, capital was in short supply in Ireland. We saw back in Chapter 70 that, a century earlier, William Pitt the Younger had tried to encourage the growth of the Irish economy by reducing the trade barriers Britain had put in place against it. But he was defeated by parliamentarians representing English business interests. When, in 1824, trade between the islands was freed up, it was done in a way that offered Ireland no protection against the far more developed British economy. Many historians believe that this too damaged Ireland's industrial progress. Although they admit the statistics are often incomplete, economic historians Sean Kenny, Jason Leonard and Kevin O'Rourke have nonetheless shown that Irish growth in the 19th century lagged behind Britain's, Germany's and far behind the US's. Even more striking is that it also lagged behind other small economies that were busily working to catch up with the big ones, such as Denmark. Slow industrial development was a double whammy. It held back Irish prosperity in itself, but also meant that there was less capital to play with. And that's where a downside of one of the best provisions of the Land Act came into play. The fixity of tenure, which protected tenants against eviction, made it unattractive to banks to advance capital loans. Given that the only security a borrower could give was his interest in the land, and knowing how hard it would be to evict an occupier from his holdings, as would be necessary if they had to seize land following a default, banks were disinclined to lend to farmers. Right from the outset, it was obvious the main benefit people would draw from the Land Act was to get their rents reduced by the courts established to set fair rents. In that respect, it was a tremendous success, but from the point of view of the nationalists, that too had a downside. As people rushed to get their rents cut, they lost interest in pursuing the campaign any further. Parnell's biographer Francis Lyons quotes a leader of the Land League, John Dillon, as saying, I very much fear that this act was drawn by a man who was told to draw an act that would kill the Land League. Parnell needed to whip up more campaigning enthusiasm in the country. 
He also, at that time, needed the support of his left wing, the men who still felt the way forward involved direct action, or what most other people would call terrorism. In particular, Irish Americans, a major source of funds for the movement, were substantially more extreme than he was, with his commitment to obtaining constitutional change, home rule, by constitutional means through Parliament. This all led to his sometimes making inflammatory declarations that often overstated his real views. Gladstone responded at a public meeting in October 1881 by attacking Parnell, using language that reflected his own deeply religious outlook for wanting to stand as Moses stood between the living and the dead, but he stands there not as Moses stood to arrest, but to spread the plague. Parnell replied to Gladstone at a public meeting in Wexford. He frightened a lot of Englishmen by urging the audience, according to Lyons, not to throw away their weapons and place themselves in the power of the perfidious and cruel and relentless English enemy. To him it was clear that England's mission in Ireland has been a failure and that Irishmen have established their right to govern Ireland by laws made by themselves on Irish soil. It would take another four decades for England to recognise its errors and let 26 of Ireland's 32 counties go. Over a century further on, it looks today as though the remaining six counties are closer than ever before to joining the first 26. Back then, though, the kind of language Parnell had used would horrify many Englishmen, and not least, the hardline Chief Secretary for Ireland in the British government, William Forster. He saw Parnell as a leading figure of the agitation in Ireland, including the boycott campaign. He wrote, Unless we can strike down the boycotting weapon, Parnell will beat us, for men, rather than let themselves be ruined, will obey him and disobey the law. It was clear that Parnell was going to be one of the first targets of the new coercion laws. If this were to happen, his colleagues asked him, who should take his place? A possibly apocryphal story says he answered, Ah, if I am arrested, Captain Moonlight will take my place. Captain Moonlight was the nickname used for the secret societies behind much of the agrarian violence in Ireland. Whether he spoke the words or not, that's exactly how things turned out. On the 13th of October 1881, just four days after his speech at Wexford, Parnell was arrested. He and his leading lieutenants spent the next several months in Kilmainham jail. That selected members of Parliament unable to represent their electors because they'd been jailed without trial. The measure was preventive. In other words, they weren't imprisoned following conviction for an actual crime. They were jailed to prevent a crime they hadn't committed. I said last time that there were aspects of British government in Ireland which looked like colonial rule. This was one of them. Incidents associated with the agrarian campaign, such as boycotting and rent strikes, started to drop rapidly after the arrest of Parnell and his colleagues. If Forster thought that this was anything to do with his action against the Parnellites, he was mistaken. It was an effect of the Land Act and the rent reductions to which it led. On the other hand, there was an increase in acts of violence, including murder. Forster was astonished. It apparently never occurred to him that if you jailed the moderates, the extremists have a field day. 
Conditions in jail weren't too bad. Parnell had a drawing room as well as a bedroom. He received visitors. He had books and writing instruments. Since many of the guards were Irish, it wasn't difficult for him to smuggle letters out. But he didn't have his freedom, and that hurt particularly hard at this time. Because, aside from politics, Parnell was in love. And this is the other side of this legendary figure's romantic story. A tragic tale of passion, deception and revenge. William O'Shea, an Irishman and former captain in the British Army, was a social and political climber and a lousy husband to his wife Catherine, daughter of an English baronet. He was elected MP for the Irish constituency of Clare in 1880 and, while significantly more conservative than Parnell, joined his group. Because of his relatively right-wing stance, he was able to maintain good relations with Gladstone's liberals and quickly set about establishing himself as an essential intermediary between Parnell and several major figures in the Liberal government, including the Prime Minister himself and the radical Joseph Chamberlain. Fortunately, both sides made a point of keeping other lines of communication open, since O'Shea was far from reliable, tending to overstate messages he was passing on and trying to tell each side what he thought they might like to hear. By the time we're talking about he and Catherine were living almost entirely separate lives, their marriage little more than an empty shell. They saw each other only occasionally, although it seems likely he insisted on what were then thought to be his conjugal rights when they did. He had a house in Eltham, near Greenwich in south-east London. He made it available to Parnell to use. There, the leader of the Irish group of MPs fell hopelessly and unreservedly in love with the estranged wife of one of his MPs. And she fell just as hard in love with him. How quickly O'Shea found out, it's hard to say. Perhaps at first he was simply delighted to have his leader staying in his house so often. Perhaps too he didn't want to make a scandal while an aunt of Catherine's, from whom they hoped to inherit, was still alive. At any rate, however much he suspected or knew, he said nothing for many years. When Parnell went to prison, Catherine was pregnant by him. O'Shea never publicly questioned his own paternity of the child and may have believed in it himself, which, if true, would rather support what I said about conjugal rights. As for Parnell's separation due to imprisonment from the woman he called by such cloying terms as wifey, was a painful experience, especially as he couldn't be there to comfort her through a pregnancy that he knew was proving difficult. Things began to change when a nephew of Parnell's died in Paris. He contacted Forster to ask to be released on leave to attend the funeral. Forster authorised the leave immediately, perhaps because he knew that Parnell needed to be treated carefully, even generously, in order to avoid turning him into a martyr. Of course, it was also true that Parnell hadn't been found guilty of any crime. On his way to Paris, Parnell met figures in the Irish movement in London, including one particularly shady figure, Frank Byrne, who was secretary to a group called the Irish Invincibles, who were planning assassinations to advance their cause. Since that was never Parnell's way, though, it's not hard to believe his later claim that there was no talk of assassination at that meeting. He also stopped at Eltham, where Catherine was able to place their newborn daughter in his arms. The baby sadly was dying, 
but he could hardly ask for permission to attend his daughter's funeral after his nephew's, since officially she was O'Shea's child. He returned on time to Dublin and was locked up again. Incidentally, he'd also seen O'Shea, who'd called on Gladstone to follow up a letter of Parnell's. The letter had renewed a commitment to the previous year to work to reduce Irish violence in return for some more concessions on the land issues. O'Shea also wrote to Chamberlain to urge compromise on the government. On the 1st of May 1882, a cabinet meeting agreed that keeping Parnell in prison was doing more harm than good. It decided, with only one dissenting voice, to release him. He left jail the following day, on the 2nd of May, just under seven months after his arrest. Whose was the dissenting voice in cabinet, I hear you ask? Why, that of the Irish secretary, Forster, who promptly resigned. Gladstone had to appoint a new chief secretary. He came up with a slightly odd, even perhaps a tad nepotistic choice, Lord Frederick Cavendish. That Cavendish name belonged to the family of the Dukes of Devonshire, and he was indeed the brother of Lord Hartington, the Secretary of State for the Colonies and the Duke's heir. Cavendish was also the husband of Gladstone's wife's niece, which made him the Prime Minister's nephew by marriage. He'd had some government experience, if at a relatively junior level, and he'd once been a private secretary of Gladstone's. Certainly he didn't seem to have the status or track record to qualify him for his new post. Whether or not he might have been good at it, however, is something we'll never know. Only hours after taking the oath of office and on the same day as his arrival in Dublin, the 6th of May 1882, he and the permanent undersecretary, Thomas Burke, were walking through Phoenix Park towards the Viceregal Lodge there. Men from the Invincibles group that we mentioned before, who'd been cheated of their hopes of killing Forster, now decided to attack Burke. Cavendish was just collateral damage, as the group threw themselves on the pair and stabbed them repeatedly with surgical knives. The Phoenix Park murders meant that just four days after leaving prison, Parnell was faced with a catastrophic development in Irish politics, as was Gladstone. In our next episode, we'll start to look at how things went on from there. Thanks for listening.